When I was a child, my father carried around the most precious treasures in his back pocket. Uh, he would take them out from time to time, uh, friends, neighbors, strangers, and uh, he, would, he would show that to them, and I was often there, but they were little pictures of what? His wife and his children. Do you still carry around pictures in your wallet, wallet-sized pictures anymore? I don't know if you do or not, but I know that I was embarrassed when I was a kid and my dad did that, and he would bring them out, and the, these long-suffering strangers would sit there and nod, and my dad would tell all about them, and, and I personally um, maybe was a little embarrassed, but I also kind of felt special. Now, today I'm a father, and I would never do that. I would bring out my phone and show 10,000 pictures to long-suffering strangers of, of my babies. Um, it's a different world that we live in. Did you know that in Psalm uh, 17, verse 8, it says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. That's a prayer to God. And the, that's what my dad was really doing. He was keeping me as the apple of his eye and his children, his family as the apple of his eye when he carried around those treasures and he showed them to people. Can you imagine praying that prayer, keep me as the apple of your eye to God your Father, knowing that he does keep you as the apple of his eye. Imagine him going around heaven, bringing out his wallet, taking out the pictures, and exhausting long-suffering angels showing pictures of Frank and saying, look at my son, look at how great he is. And, and Mary Alice, look at her, she's, she's my daughter, can't you believe it? I love her so much. Now, I want to share with you uh, an image, a photo of a couple of, a couple of the apples of God's eye. Are you ready? Okay, here it is. Ted Bundy. Whoa. Uh, convicted of raping and murdering at least 30 women, probably murdered over 50. And even his defense lawyer said that Ted is the very face of evil in this world. And he said that. However, uh, a couple hours before he was put to death, he met with a Christian writer and, um, and speaker, Dr. James Dobson. And I don't know if you know this part of the story, but he's talked with him and in that interview, I think you can even get it on YouTube still, Ted Bundy says that he deserves the worst punishment and he, does, and he did. Um, and the only comfort that he had was that he walked through the valley of the shadow of death with Jesus Christ, his Savior. Wow. Here's another picture of one of the apples of God's eye. Are you ready? Jeffrey Dahmer. Have you heard of him? He was known as the um, Milwaukee Monster, and he was convicted of killing uh, at least 17 men and boys between 1987 and 1991. Just a truly terrible act and a truly terrible person. However, when he went to jail, he was ministered to and there he was baptized. And for, from then until the day that he was, I think he was murdered in jail. Um, from that day on, he, he believed in Jesus Christ as his savior. Now, how does it make you feel that your picture is in the wallet with these guys? Does it make your stomach turn just a little bit? Does it make you wonder, does God's grace go too far? Because I'll tell you, uh, I've, 
I've thought about it before, and I, and I thought about it this way. It says, it can't be that easy. In fact, I was on a tour of uh, the footsteps of Paul, and we're going through Greece and Turkey, and our tour guide, very knowledgeable man, he knows the Bible all the way through better than I knew at that time, um, for, cert, for sure. But uh, I, we asked him about his personal faith. Do you believe these things that you, you know, lead people on a tour for? And I remember him saying this when we were in, in Istanbul. He said, I can't believe in a God that you can do whatever you want and then you can be forgiven. It's an offense, it's a scandal, isn't it? To think that these murderers and the thief on the cross, that these people at the last moment come to faith in Jesus and, and they're saved. Does God's grace go too far? People today think so too. Um, however, if you had that emotion, and it is an emotion when you see those pictures of these these mass murderers and the, 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 the thing in the last th thing in life is that they confess Jesus, that's an offense to us and that can feel unfair. And that might be the same feeling that these Pharisees and teachers of the law and religious lawyers were having when they were looking at Jesus doing ministry. And do you know who hate Jesus hang hung out with all the time? It was with the thieves and the murderers and the prostitutes and the people that were social outsiders from the church. In fact, this scene from Luke chapter 15, as it sets up the first couple of verses, is Jesus sitting down to eat with notorious sinners. And it says here in Luke 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's one thing to go to the corner where there's somebody asking for a handout and to roll down the window and to hand them a dollar bill. It's another thing to say, get in the back seat of the car. My wife and I are on our way to our anniversary meal. We want you to have supper with us. You drive down to Papado's and get steak and lobster and you sit down with somebody that really shouldn't be at the table with you. Jesus is at the table with people that he shouldn't have been at the table with. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, this doesn't make sense. Usually when you had meals with people, it was people who were like you, people that could do a quid pro quo with you, somebody that was on the same social level as you. And here Jesus is sitting at the table with people who had nothing to do with him. He wasn't getting anything out of this from these people that he was eating with. And yet Jesus makes a point to go beyond the comfort zone of the religious people of that day. And we're going to find out why. Jesus goes on, and uh, the rest of this chapter, I'll summarize it, uh, up to the parable that we're going to look at tonight. It's, it's the lost parables, I like to call them. There are three of them, and they come right in a row. The parable of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, and there's a shepherd. One of the sheep goes off. I mean, sheep are the stupidest animals, and this stupid sheep goes off and uh, gets lost. Now, you'd think that he would stay with the 99, right? And just try to keep damage control. But this shepherd, it says, goes away from the 99, goes over hills and over streams and through thin and thick, he goes and he finds this stupid animal and he puts it on his shoulders like he had just won the lottery. And he, and he came home and he celebrated. He threw a big block party for all of his neighbors and he said, rejoice with me, my sheep that was lost is found now. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin. It's a woman who loses a valuable coin. 
And uh, she, houses back then were different than today. They didn't have electricity. It was hard to find things. She, she goes searching and sweeping her house clean, turning over cushions, uh, shaking out rugs, just like I do when I lose my phone at home. I'm not stopping until I find that thing. It's too valuable. It has too much in there, and I need to find it. You can think about that urgency that she had. Well, she finds the coin, and what does she do? She throws a party. I've never heard of anybody throwing a party for a lost cell phone or a lost coin, but th- this is the point of a parable. It actually suspends your, your disbelief to a point that you wonder, what is he trying to get at here? This thing is, just sticks out strangely. You throw a party for a coin? You throw a party for a stupid animal? It doesn't make sense, but there's, there's rejoicing going on in each and every one of these parables. So when you get to the parable of the lost sons and the lovesick father, you can understand how this is gonna go. But there's a twist at the end. It's a major twist that connects verses one and two, the scene of the Pharisees and the scene of the sinners, all the way to this joyful euphoria of celebrating the lost that they're missing out on. The parable of uh, the lost sons and the lovesick father is probably the most popular of Jesus' parables, and you probably know it very well. Even people that don't study the Bible or don't go to church know what it means to be a prodigal. Okay, so there's two sons, there's an older son and a younger son, and there's a father. The younger son asks for his share of the inheritance even before dad's first foot is in the grave. And dad, who loves him very much, gives him the inheritance. In fact, it says that he gives both sons inheritance uh, at this time. The son, the younger son, takes the inheritance and he, he immediately, without much more than a goodbye, leaves the home and he goes to a far off land, a, f- a country far, far away. And before we get going even farther, and I know you th- know the end of the story, I want you to hit pause because it's Father's Day. I want you to think about that father for just a second. Have you ever held a baby in your arms, your own baby, and prayed to God that that baby and your love never be removed from that baby's life? And you want that baby to know that you love it, him, or you love her so much, and you're gonna do anything to show this love to him that, 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 that he'll know from day one all the way that you love him. And then the baby grows up, and you teach the baby how to, well, now a young boy, how to catch a baseball and how to go fishing. You spend time with that child developing uh, their character, teaching them uh, how to hold doors for women, how to be a man. You're there to help with the homework. You're there to, to be there when he cries and when he laughs. You're in every moment of his life, and then out of the blue, he asks for all of your money. And when he gets your money, he packs up his room. He goes out the door with little more than a goodbye and gets in the car that you bought him, and drives away, not telling you where he's going. It breaks a parent's heart, and it happens. And it happens here in this story as a parable, but it also is a parable that's pointing to a real truth, a real story, and that's the story of you and me. Did you know that God loves you? And he loved you even before you were born. Jeremiah. 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And did you know that he was there and he never removes his, his love from you? 
he, he was there when you learned how to catch the baseball. He was there when, when, he was there when you went through the tears. He was there when you went through the laughing. And here's, here's a passage from Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? He cares for you, and he gives you everything that you have. He gives you the experiences of this life. And then, and here's the tragic part, when we walk away from God in our hearts in a very real way, and we say to God, I know, God, you've given me everything, and yet I'm going to love my career more than you, or I'm going to love things or money or you fill in the blank more than you, God, it's like slamming that door shut on that relationship with the God that loves you so much and walking away from him. It's called sin. And when God tells us part of you being my child is not just that you keep me as your number one father and only father in heaven, but that you love your neighbor as yourself and then he sees the jealousy, the lust, the, the gossip, all of the things that we do against one another, it's like walking away from God. You know what happens to the, the son when he walks away? He thinks that he's being liberated, but actually he's, he finds himself far away from home. His investments go sour. If, the, if he had investments, he spent the money, it says, uh, frivolously. And then the son, there was a famine in the land and he lost everything. It says here in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He left the home because he felt restricted by his father or he felt like he needed to be liberated and he needed to be free. And now what is he doing? He's a slave. Walking away from God seems like on the outside, like a good idea. And it seems like it's a liberating thing to get away from his care, but you're gonna find out, and we'll get to this in the second half, that it is an extremely unfulfilling life and it's a life cut off from God eternally. And this is just a picture of it. He's longing to fill his stomachs with the pods that the pigs were eating. <clears throat> I just uh, spoke to uh, somebody this week, and she told me that she met, she has a little girl, and her little girl met another little girl. Um, and fortunately, they've become friends. But uh, this little girl, eight years old, she wants to kill herself. And it's a serious epidemic in our country is depression and suicide. And it's something that we need to address too as individuals and as a church to help people out and to get people into a better place. The sad part about it, the really tragic part about the story that I found out was that the parents of this little girl um, both grew up in the church, both grew up knowing God and they walked away from God and are indifferent to the church and to the message of the gospel today. And that's the home that she's growing up in. I don't bring this up as because depression or suicide is a moral failing in it of itself that is unbelief. I'm bringing this up because that little girl is going through one of these pits, one of these valleys where, where she, she has these feelings and yet there's no leg to stand on, not even the grace of God that's in her life that, come from her, that comes from her home. I'm saying this because you get the idea from, from this story 
that this young man is going through one of those seasons, that he has hit rock bottom and he's looking for anything, even to be a servant in his father's household, he says, is better than being cut off from my father here because at least in my father's household, the servants, they get, they get treated well. They get treated a lot better than I'm being treated out here. He recognizes in the midst of his low point that, that there's something about his father that he knows is true and that his father would maybe, if he maybe, take him in as a slave. And so that's what it says here in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, they all have a common ending to them, or second part of it in the parable of the lost sons here, where there's a joyful celebration, this, that, that, this exuberance for, for somebody that has done terrible things. And this is, the, this is really the scandal of grace happening right here is that this father puts a robe on his son that has squandered everything and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. But you have to imagine this son, think about this younger son, and every time that he would put that ring on his finger from now on, from the day that he got it until the day that he died, he would be thinking of grace. And every time that he put that warm coat over his shoulders, it wasn't just a coat that covered his shoulders and kept him warm, but when, when he felt that warmth, it was literally grace again, reminding him about how he was forgiven and celebrated by his father. Every time he put his feet into the sandals and he walked in them, he was walking literally in a grace gift from his father. He goes in and they throw this huge feast. And now here is the change in the parables that's different than the last two. That brings all of Luke chapter 15 back around and ties it up. The son who's standing on the outside of the party finds out there's a party going on, the older son, and this is how he reacts. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went outside and pleaded with him. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
you know that there's a real story behind the story and the real story of, of these sons is this, is that the love that God showed to the first son was so offensive and scandalous that the second son, the son who has been working hard, the son who's been obedient, the son who, who, who has done everything that his father has asked him to do, can't believe in the grace that was given to his, the, the younger one. The real grace in the real story is this, that you and I sinners have sinned so far as to remove ourselves from God, and God has given us his own son. And that son is Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in your place, and who died on the cross, and gave you the free and full forgiveness of all of your sins, paid down without any quid pro quo to it. That's grace. But the, but the brother on the outside of the party, did you catch what he said about his relationship with his father? He said, I've been with you this whole time and I have been a slave to you. Now, do you notice that at the beginning I said, this is the parable of the lost sons because the son who's been in his father's household this whole time is just as lost, if not more lost, than the son who knew that he needed grace and forgiveness and got it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the people, and the, I'm going to call them the religious people today, look at how far God's grace goes and are offended that God would forgive the murderers, that he would sit with the tax collectors and the sinners, and yet in their own minds they're slaves to God. In their own mind they want the quid pro quo with God. I'm telling you right now, as a pastor who grew up in a church, and maybe you have grown up in a church, maybe you've lived in God's house your whole life, but the minute that you begin to think, God, look at what I do. I'm a pastor. I preach. I love your word. I love your people. That gets me in the door? No. The minute that you think, God, I'm a volunteer. I go on medical missions. I start churches. I do, I, I love my kids. Look, God, I'm being the best father that I can be. Look at that father over there. He's, a, he's scum over there. And yet you love him more than me? Look at everything that I've done for you, God. What we do actually is that we shrink God down into a little peanut-sized God. And we are the God that puts him in our pocket for whenever we want to use him. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're that person standing on the outside and I'm preaching and cutting myself open right now here, because I know that it's easy for church people to fall into this. You're farther away from God than that other second son because spiritual blindness is more dangerous than physical blindness. Physical blindness, the people, they know, they know that they're blind. But a spiritually blind person thinks that they have it all put together, but they don't. Um, not only, and the, the story says that he stays on the outside and he chooses to stay on the outside because the, the banquet of grace is too far for him to go. Um, a religious person today that lives underneath the behavior model that I'm going to call this, the behavior model and not the grace model, um, if you live underneath that model, then you're going to run into two things uh, that you're not going to like. Number one, you're not going to like yourself. If you live underneath the behavior model, your emotional, your emotional status is going to be shooting up and down like a roller coaster or a teeter-totter because the moment, and you're operating underneath good behavior, the moment somebody criticizes you, what are you going to feel? Crushed. 
And the moment somebody gives you a compliment, what are you going to feel? Like you're God incarnate. Because you have behaved in a way that makes yourself better than other people. Um, I, 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 this is a common thing. Benjamin Franklin actually uh, didn't operate underneath the grace model himself, but he operated underneath the, the behavior model. And he, if you know the mind of Benjamin Franklin, wanted to get this down pat. And so he came up with 13 virtues that he wanted to follow. Uh, frugality and industry and silence were a couple of them. And he, these 13 virtues he put on one page each in a diary. And he worked through a week at a time, one page at a time, working at each and every one of these virtues. And he did this to cycle through the year because he wanted to behave better. And he wanted to work out I'm going to call it his justification for being a good person in a real way. And now, no doubt that could work. But doesn't that make you cry out or think that he was crying out for something greater? He said at the end of it all that, um, that he still struggled with pride and he could never get over it. Exercises like that, exercises underneath the behavior model, are common in the church. And that's why I bring it up. And it doesn't make you a better person in God's sight. In fact, it could actually frustrate you. So number one, uh, you're going to make a monster out of yourself. Number two, other people will not be able to live with you. Mark Twain once said it this way. He said that uh, there are some people who are good in the worst, in the worst way. And what he meant was this, the people who put on a front in the behavior model are the people that are impossible to get along with. Why? Because if I'm on the behavior model and you come up to me and you, and, and you say, how are things going? And I say, fine. And you say, how are, th I say, how are things going? And you're, you say, fine. You're never going to really share with me uh, your true self. You're not going to be real with me because you know that I operate underneath the behavior model. And anything that you say that maybe doesn't live up to my expectations, I'm going to judge you on. You're going to have a group of friends, no doubt, but that group of friends there are going to be people living underneath the behavior model that you have, that you've set up for yourself. So you can have a group of friends, but you're going to be on the outskirts of that banquet of grace, looking in, and your gospel is going to become gossip. Here's the deal at the end of the parable. The father comes to the son, and, and the interesting thing is that he runs to the second son, just like he ran to the first son. The second son, the religious person, he runs to and he says to him, come inside, celebrate. And the son complains like he complains, and then the father says, you know that you've lived underneath my house this whole time, and all I have is yours. If you've lived underneath that behavior model, if you're the second son, God does not want you to stay on the outside. God does want you to repent, believe that you are a sinner, and come into the banquet of grace with all of the sinners that are made saints through the blood of Christ. So, has grace gone too far? Some people might say it does, but Jesus comes back with this answer. God's grace has gone so far that it forgives the murderer, the prostitute, the tax collector, and the sinner, you and me. And he invites us into this banquet of grace to celebrate with him the one who has given you that freedom, and he's given you the inheritance, he's given you the sonship, Jesus Christ, your Savior. Amen.